every American citizen must have an equal right to vote. The administration of elections is primarily a state and local responsibility. Whether you voted for the very first time or waited in line for a very long time, by the way, we have to fix that. Welcome to High Turnout Wide Margins. This is Brianna Lennon. I am the county clerk in Boone County, and with me is my co-host. Eric Fay, Director of Elections in St. Louis County, Missouri. And today we have a really special guest. We have David Stafford. He is the Escambia County Supervisor of Elections, and we're really grateful to have him on the show to talk about Florida and his experience over the years in elections. And so First, we want to ask, how did you end up in the election space and working in Florida? Like probably what you've heard from a lot of your guests thus far, I did not grow up dreaming to be an election administrator. Not that I had anything against it, it's just not something that was, you know, on my to-do list. I come from a family of public servants. My, my father worked for the federal government for, actually still does, he hasn't, he's semi-retired. Uh, I got two brothers that were in the military, another, uh, one, of, one of whom went on to be a federal prosecutor and then uh, now works for uh, the attorney general in Florida. Um, and so, you know, kind of that, that public service element was, was part of our DNA. Went to school down in Gainesville and University of Florida, ended up back here in Pensacola uh, after college working for United States Senator. Uh, and so I had about five or six counties that I was responsible for, you know, going to meetings. But it was it was cool because, you know, when the when the senator would come to town, I'd staff him, uh, which was not that often. But anyway, it was a neat job for someone in their early 20s. And this was the early 90s. And then uh, the big election in 94, and when there was a big change over in Washington and local congressman w- was elected to an open seat uh, looking for staff to go to Washington. So I hopped at the opportunity to be able to do that. So then I spent about better part of a decade up in, up in DC, learned a lot. Uh, but then, uh, you know, wife and I had our second child and looking for, you know, what we're going to do long-term and decided that we'd try to get back to Florida. I had an opportunity to do that, came back to uh, here to Pensacola um, and uh, was actually commuting back and forth to, uh, to Manhattan, working in, in media of all things, uh, which I was not very good at to tell you the truth. And I'd actually, it was an open seat. There, there was a, a man who had served uh, for more than 40 years as supervisor of elections. He had passed away, and then one of his longtime aides uh, took over for him and did it, um, <laughs> went through the 2000 election, was elected because we, we're, our, our elections are on the same cycle uh, as uh, the presidential cycle. Uh, so she was elected uh, in 2000, and then, you know, after that said, I've had enough, and so I'm not going to... Uh, uh, run again in 2004. Um, so it was an open seat. And I had actually been approached earlier by some folks to say, hey, what, you know, what do you think about this? And I initially said, no, it's not, no, you know, it's not for me. And then literally, uh, I, I'm, I walked into the office uh, on the last day of qualifying. Uh, our qualifying ends on, a, on Fridays at noon. I walked into the office about 930 and followed my paperwork. Ran, there was a, it was a crowded Republican primary. I was able to, to find my way out of that uh, and then won the general election and the rest is, I guess, history. That's the condensed version, believe it or not. You touched on one thing, your work uh, in Congress, and that's pretty unique for election administrators, I think, to have worked for a congressperson. Uh, I know you've served for some time on the uh, legislative committee with the election center. 
do you have any prognostications on what, if anything, might happen with HR1 and S1 in the next session? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's been helpful. Uh, I think it, perhaps a somewhat of a unique perspective, although there's a ton of people out there that know a lot about, a lot more about legislation than I do. Um, but anyway, I think it, I think it's been helpful to me just in, in my ability to, to, to do my job, seeing the other side of it, having run campaigns uh, or helping run campaigns and, you know, serving in the legislative branch. Obviously, the, the, the environment has changed dramatically. So you have, you went from, you know, two of the three lovers uh, being controlled by, by Republicans now to all three uh, being controlled uh, by Democrats. And so a piece of legislation that wouldn't have seen the light of day two years ago now at least has the opportunity. And that's not, you know, being partisan or anything. It's just an observation. Um, so the question is, is, is for me personally, is, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think, and even the people we heard, the staffers we heard from, from both sides uh, that came and talked to the JULC, huge comprehensive, you know, what I call a kitchen sink bill like HR1. In that format, I don't think anybody realistically thinks that something like that has a realistic chance of making it through both houses and getting signed by the president. Certain elements I do think are going to get some attention and some movement. And I would think that, you know, you look to elements that uh, like security um, where you've seen some bipartisan consensus uh, in the past, they just haven't uh, materialized into making it out of the Senate and onto the president's desk. So that's one of the one of one of the sections that I would you know items that I would look for. The other one uh, that you hear starting to hear a lot more about is the Voting Rights Act, and that may you know again not have any great insight, but just as a, a gut, I would think that that's probably going to get some attention, perhaps early on, to try to get some movement. Uh, with the, with the Voting Rights Act, uh, I guess the John Lewis bill. I don't know that it's been reintroduced yet in this Congress, but I would think something like that uh, would be something that, that they would try to move pretty quickly. And then, you know, then then everything else. And then also the misinformation, disinformation, which is broader than just uh, just elections, but, you know, uh, and that's, that's trickier in how, how you sort of legislate on that. So I know there hasn't been a whole lot of federal legislation in recent years, for example, the election centers legislative committee has been, you know, it's been relatively quiet there from your experience in Congress and from your experience working as the supervisor of elections and, you know, tracking legislation at the federal level, what role, what impact can local election administrators have on the process? They're obviously an important element. Having relationships, uh, you hear this all the time, having relationships with your legislators. One of the things that um, just sort of the basics on, you know, because you get people that lobby you all the time, you know, we would even have a sort of an unwritten rule that anybody from the district uh, had priority over anybody else um, sitting around waiting to see the congressman or, or, or their members. And so, you know, I would encourage all the local election administrators out there, if you don't currently have a, a relationship with your, your member of Congress, it's obviously a lot easier for, for a House member than, than perhaps a United States Senator, just because you, you have a greater opportunity to, to get FaceTime with them uh, or their staff. Their staff's obviously an important element as well, because they're, they're the ones that are charged with, hey, advise me on this bill. What, what does this bill do? Who's going to like it? Who's not going to like it, et cetera. And that's the person you're going to hopefully be able to get on the phone if you've got a big concern. Um, so, I, you know, it's extraordinarily important. Uh, the staff uh, of the relevant committees of jurisdiction, uh, the administration, House Committee on Administration, Senate Rules, 
Uh, they're important, uh, really important, because obviously they're the ones that uh, help formulate that policy at the behest of their members. And, you know, they can, they, they're an important part of the process. And so to the extent that you can uh, converse with those folks and, and let them know that, you know, your point of view. And then you got the organizations, you got NAS, NASA at Election Center, the state associations uh, are, are all important. But, uh, you know, then you've got all these other folks out there, the uh, elections are always unique. I tell people because, you know, every elected, every person that's ever been elected is, is in some form or fashion an expert in elections, right? Because they knew enough to be able to get elected and, and they have, they have a personal connection to election legislation for that very reason. I mean, they, they may not be affected by agriculture policy or housing policy or something like that, but literally every elected member of Congress uh, and state legislator is in some form or fashion <laughs> affected by how elections are conducted. So they've got a, a you know, built-in personal interest um, in, in, in election legislation. Since you did go from, you know, working on the broad level policy stuff, working on legislation, and now you're in the implementation world, has that changed your view and the way that you've approached talking about federal legislation or trying to talk to lawmakers about how these things actually work once they get down to the ground level. Yeah, obviously, you, you know, when you're when you're in the executive branch and, and implementing uh, policy, I think you have certainly have a greater uh, appreciation for a comma or a semicolon or a, a little nuances uh, in statutory language can make gigantic differences and you know really really important things. I think having having the having a perspective on both sides is important because a lot of times you have the folks on the executive side that are implementing you know policies passed by the legislative, you know they're like well, well why don't they just do it this way you know why don't we just change it you know it's you know matter of fact black and white this is bad let's make it better, but the the, the legislative process is, is is gray at best. And so you've got all kinds of competing interests uh, and you have to balance those, those out. So, you know, it truly is sausage making. And so I think, the, I think each side has to have a, a certain level of, of respect and also understanding uh, of the challenges of each. Because if you're, if you're an election administrator, you just go up and say, you know, I don't like this or it's going to make things hard. You have to understand what the other side, what the, what the folks that are wanting to change or make policy what their intent is. Sometimes, you know, sometimes it's pure, sometimes perhaps it's it's not. And so to have a sort of a recognition, you know, sort of a, a mutual respect for each side, I think, I think is important because at the end of the day, each side is not going to get what, what they want. You know, election administrators are not going to be able to write the election bills to the extent that, you know, they would like to. And, and hopefully the, the legislators are not going to, you know, just sort of dispose of any concerns or interests uh, of those that have to actually implement the laws that they pass. And so it's a give and take. Sometimes it, you know, um, it, it skews one, one way a little too much than the other, but ultimately I think that, you know, the system works. In my view, most of the important legislation as it relates to, to elections is, is done at the state level. You know, if you think about the big pieces of federal legislation, I mean, other than, you know, over a billion dollars for elections over the course of the last three years, and then the CARES Act money, we've utilized uh, those to great effect here in my county and in our state. But if you look back, you know, you, basically the last real big piece uh, really was HAVA. And then before that, it was NVRA. 
and then you, you see, I mean, I, I think all three of us know that there's, you know, huge room for improvement, particularly in NVRA, just to modernize it. Um, but you see, it really hasn't been touched in what, since the mid nineties when it was passed. So I know one thing the listeners would love to know, at least I would, how good did it feel in 2020 for Florida not to be Florida? I know that's a really <laughs> mean way to put it, but Florida has just been through the ringer, not only in 2000, but also in 2018. And you, you had the vantage point of, you know, not being necessarily in your current role, but being around uh, the elections in Florida in both 2000 and 2018. Do you think Florida made good progress in the issues and recounts, things like that uh, in that time? Did they spend their time wisely? We, we obviously, I think, have a unique perspective here in Florida just because we've, you know, whatever you want to call it, redheaded step, stepchild, you know, laughingstock joke, whatever. Since, and then we sort of, you know, we've known for a long time that at least in recent years, that's, that's undeserved, but whatever it's worth, you know, it's not worth spending the time. You know, we just kind of kept, keep our heads down and, and try to do our jobs. Um, so that part of it really, you know, for most of us in Florida, doesn't really bother us, you know, having that sort of reputation. Sometimes, you know, you benefit from low expectations as well. But we've made tremendous uh, progress. The, the, the other thing I'll say is I never, and, and I sort of always caution my colleagues, you know, when they start going down that path, I said, just be careful, you know, because I, we all go to the same kind of meetings. And, and you know, you particularly if you're maybe having a cocktail uh, after the meetings and you're all sitting, you know, having a casual conversation. And we, we, we heard a lot of this, particularly in the mid to, to late 2000s. And it was sort of like when, once the people let their guard down, like, thank God it was you guys and not us. Because I think everybody saw, their other 49 states saw what we went through in the aftermath of, uh, during and in the aftermath of 2000. To some level, we're like, thank goodness, you know, that kind of scrutiny didn't, was not, you know, trained on us. Um, and so I think, you know, clearly through HAVA, the whole country benefited uh, from the reforms uh, that happened after 2000. So we had parallel tracks. We, the Florida did their own election reform in addition to HAVA, and they, they kind of went on parallel tracks. But the important thing is, is, is we kept sort of tweaking the system over the years. Sometimes legislature did things that, that we didn't like, and quite frankly, we told them, said, you know, this is probably not a good idea. Um, here's why. And sometimes they've they've come back and, and reverse course. Sometimes they've done things that against what what we've advised them, and you know they're still in the books, and you know the the, the world didn't end because again, a lot of times you, there's competing interests. So we, we have come a, a long, long way. You know, I have to remember in 2018 we did three statewide recounts. Okay, never been done in the history, as far as we know, in the history of the country, and that was the first statewide recount that we had done since. Uh, the 2000 election. So it was a huge, huge, huge test for, for us and for, for the system. And, and, you know, what I would say when people asked me at the time, I said, you know, it was stressed, but it held. And to, to their credit, the legislature did make some tweaks um, after the 2018 election to improve the year. There was a couple issues in a couple of counties, but if you look overall, uh, a state the size of us with the, with the incredibly condensed certification deadlines and recount timelines that we have to be able to do three recounts in that period of time um, was, was, you know, what I think was fairly universally considered a, a, a success. And so the other part of, I think, our success, and if you want to call it that, in 2000, uh, was our system was built uh, to be able to um, handle something like a global, you know, an unexpected global pandemic. Why do I say that? 
Well, if you, you all know Charles Stewart's snow globes, right? So if you look at the 2018 version of that, the, 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 the state that was most in the center, so you know, equally divided among the three um, methods uh, of casting a ballot, Florida was almost dead center. They were closer to the middle than any other state. Now, after 2020, we moved sort of down to the left quadrant, which was down more toward, like everybody did, towards uh, vote by mail. Uh, but our system was built. So we have huge counties like Miami-Dade with, you know, over, you know, we have three, I think three or four counties now with over a million voters. And we've got tiny little counties like Lafayette and Liberty with, you know, five, six, 10,000 voters. So we, but we have a system that, that, that can accommodate that. And so for us, it was like, just me personally, it was a matter of just scaling up our, our vote by mail operation because we've had no excuse uh, vote by mail for, for 20 years. And so we know how to run elections with large numbers of vote by mail ballots. And one of the things, and this, this is more philosophical thing from the legislature standpoint is they, they front load everything um, so we were able to be finished pretty quickly. Part of that is we're allowed to start processing uh, our vote by mail ballots three weeks before election day. And so by the time there's actually, we have a, actually have a state law that says within the first 30 minutes of the polls closing on election night, we have to report all of our early votes and all vote by mail ballots that we have tabulated up to that point. And so literally within 30 minutes, in this election, you know, 75% of the votes cast were reported within 30 minutes of the, of the uh, uh, polls closing. For, for better or worse, that other states don't do it like that. They have more of a, uh, a post-election period, and I think that's where a lot of the controversy and, and, and questions arose was during that post-election period. In Missouri for 2020, because of all of the issues with the mail, our Secretary of State allowed everybody that was military or overseas to electronically transmit the ballot back. But that was completely within the discretion of the Secretary of State, so that probably won't apply to future elections. And that I feel like that's kind of indicative of the patchwork of military and overseas services that a lot of the states have to provide. So I was wondering if you could kind of dig into where you've seen it move over the last few years and where you think it's going in the future. We're one of the top 10 counties in the country for concentration of UOCAVA voters. We've got um, Naval Air Station Pensacola, uh, which is basically where every aviator comes through the Navy, comes through uh, Pensacola. And now we've gotten a lot of joint operations here. So we, we had a tremendous military presence. And so we've got a large UOCAVA uh, population. So it's important to, to us. Uh, but yeah, it, it has uh, obviously changed, you know, uh, the from, from a federal perspective, when, when, when Congress passed the MOVE Act, uh, you know, it, it kind of married up with a lot of things that we were already doing. Uh, so we didn't have to make any, any huge changes legislatively or administratively to, to be able to, to comply. But, you know, you still have a challenge. One of the scary things, again, with everything that's gone on with this election, one of the scary things that, that you know, we were able to avoid to a certain extent was the, uh, the issue with the, um, the postal uh, system. You know, that was a early, I think, late, late 2019, early 2020, you know, basically looked like the, the whole international postal system was basically going to shut down um, for, for U.S. mail. And that was terrifying because we're, we're a state that unless you're over, if you're overseas, you can fax back. We, we can't receive email ballots. Um, so the, the majority of our, our overseas voters still return their, their, their ballots via paper. Um, and so, you know, it was a, it was a big issue and there just wasn't 
too many great options because I don't think our secretary, our governor or secretary felt like they had the ability. And I'm not a lawyer, just to, just as a, um, as a disclaimer, I probably should have said that from the beginning, but I don't think that they felt like they had the authority to, to, to change something like, you know, okay, well, you can do electronic email or, or some other form of electronic return. Anyway, they didn't. So uh, that existing system uh, was there. We've actually had a bit of a history in, in Florida uh, dating back to late 80s, early 90s. Uh, there was a case brought in federal court where at the end of the day, it was there was a consent decree that allowed for UOCAVA ballots uh, from overseas to be accepted up to 10 days past election day. And that was one of the issues in 2000 was the fight over those late arriving ballots and if they have postmarks or didn't have postmarks. And, and, but that, that's something that, that has been recognized that we, we've made accommodations for um, UOCAVA voters in, in, in Florida for some time. And then, you know, again, they've, they've tweaked it up to now. But, but still, you know, I'm involved with CSG Overseas Voting Initiative, the cooperative agreement between FAP and, and CSG to, to help look at, at ways to improve the experience for UOCAVA voters around the world. You know, I, I, there, there's still some certainly some room uh, for improvement, and and if you look at something like had the uh, had we not been able to pull the rabbit uh, out of our hat with the UPU, and you know there's a significant population that really didn't have any great options uh, to be able to cast their ballot, and you know the age old question, you know you mentioned that, that your your electronic return is that still you know somewhat of a third rail? You have a, a we we could have to do a whole you know, show just on that, but at some point you got to balance out the, the, the ability for that voter, so that forward deployed uh, voter that may not otherwise have an opportunity to participate in the election if they don't have that opportunity, if they would not have that opportunity to, to have some, some form of electronic return. Um, so the question is, is, it, you know, it's a risk analysis and I know there's Umpteen thousands of, of security experts that are way smarter than me and, and know a lot more about network security and all that than I do. But at the end of the day, I, I have to be an advocate for my voter, uh, my voter um, who you know, calls me or emails me and says, I can't get this ballot back uh, in, in time via mail or, you know, what are my options? And you have to tell them, you know, really, these are your options. There's, 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 so there, in my mind, there's still work to be done to be able to try to make sure that, that those voters um, that are in that position have the opportunity and to participate in the election to choose their commander in chief, among other things. Uh, and so we need to be bending over backwards and, you know, looking under every rock for every available opportunity uh, within reason. Again, that, that, that takes into consideration the, the, the risk aspect uh, to, to ensure that that voter can vote. So if you're just faxing paper ballot return for your UOCAVA voters, I assume you get a pretty high amount of FWABs or federal write-in absentee ballots. Is that correct? Tons of FPCAs, tons of FWABs, tons of, uh, you know, fax ballots back. And so we have a huge duplication. Uh, that's one of our biggest challenges. E even the ones that come back in the mail have to still have to be duplicated because I, what I guess was un unsaid was that we do have a electronic delivery system to all UOCAVA voters, all, all absent military and, and uh, civilian overseas voters. So the, the, the transmission to the voter is not an issue because that's instantaneous. It, it, the challenge is always on the back end. So yeah, we, we get we get all, all kinds and sorts. And um, so we, we've, you know, honed our processes over the year. I remember there was there was one election that 
uh, it just came up and, and bit us. I think it was a presidential, maybe in 12, uh, that just the, the, the volume of ballots that came in in the last day or two that needed to be duplicated was so huge uh, that really it was a huge, um, I mean, we were working around the clock, um, didn't go home, I don't think on election night, or maybe we did finally have my judge got fed up because the state was telling us we had to stay and the judge is like, nope, we're leaving. You know, these people need some at least a couple hours of sleep. So that was one of the things. And so we've, you know, we, we put in procedures to, to, to stay a little bit ahead of that. Uh, but, you know, you've got, I mean, that's an issue. You look at, say, a, a, a county like Duval County, much bigger than we are. Again, a significant, or Hillsborough County, significant um, military populations there, too. And so that, you know, you, the, the, the volume is, is great there. So that's something you always have to contend with is, you know, those late arriving ballots, having to uh, get those in a position where they're able to be tabulated. And again, keep those, as I mentioned earlier, Florida is very intent on as many ballots as possible being received by 7 p.m. on election day and then reported there quickly thereafter. And I, I don't see that changing. If anything, I think that point of view, for better or worse, has, has been reinforced by uh, this last election. I think you're, you're starting to see other states maybe head toward towards that method versus post-election period. Again, whether you think it's a good idea or a bad idea, I think that's just a, a fact is, is what, we're gonna, what you're starting to see. The duplication issue is the main reason I asked the question about FWABs. You know, duplication for any election administrator is painful. It's labor intensive. A few years ago, we bought some software to kind of automate it. How do you deal with duplication in your office and some of the other large Florida counties that, that you know of um, that have those large UOCABA populations? How do they handle that kind of volume? Uh, you know, it's tough. I was on a call yesterday. We were talking about listening to, to some, some other, I think it was Orange County, California was talking about that. I guess they have a system that automates at least part of it. Ours is still, you know, manual. Um, now we did in, in our primary election, uh, we have uh, ballot marking devices. And so we actually utilize those, but because and it's kind of a, you know, sort of in the weeds explanation, but, but basically because we had a two card ballot in the, uh, in the 2020 general, how do you deal with only one card coming back when you have, if, if, it's, a, if it's a BMD ballot, it's all it's all on one card. So you, would you are you unnecessarily creating undervotes and you know anyway? So we we ended up doing it your traditional paper method. Basically, we we took an entire day of canvassing um, and brought in teams of uh, of duplicators, uh, and that's all they did for a better part of I think 10, 12 hours. Um, and, and if we wouldn't have done that, we'd you know probably still be <laughs> there duplicating right now. And, and so it's just something you have to plan for and kind of you know know the volume, uh, know how long it's going to take. Uh, and then you know at least our what we do is then our three-person canvassing board literally looks at every single one of the originals against the duplication uh, to to ensure that they're you know that they were done correctly before they're tabulated. And so that's a huge challenge for the canvassing board as well because even if you're you know it takes a minute or 30 seconds to to go through a, a ballot to compare it you know you start adding that up um and it, and it takes a tremendous amount of time so it's just something you have to plan for but you know i've seen different options for for automating that process and i think a lot of them look good um and i've, I've seen some of them in practice they all i think have their some tweaks uh, and unique um, you know, challenges. Um, there's, I don't think there's a perfect system out there right now, uh, but anything that, that, that can be done to help automate 
the, that duplication process while, of course, maintaining the integrity uh, and accuracy of it, I think, you know, is, is, would be well received. There's nothing more frustrating than duplicating ballots when you get to the end, you mark the wrong choice. <laughs> Start over. Oh, it's awful. It's awful. Particularly if you're at two o'clock in the morning, you know, and you're having to, 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 to try to, you know, get this stuff done. Uh, yeah. And people are tired. I mean, that's the other thing is it's human beings. That's how, if there's a lot, one thing I would want to, you know, I think we would all want people to, to you know, your non-election administrators uh, to know is that elections are run by human beings, you know, many of whom uh, are, are tasked with what I would consider the, the impossible, right? So what do we expect them to do? Well, first of all, we train them, you know, for maybe four to six hours, maybe an entire day, maybe. And then they're asked to go work for 14 hour days under pretty intense pressure, serving perhaps a couple thousand people. Oh, and by the way, you're not allowed to make a mistake. Uh, and you're going to have, you know, uh, partisan uh, officials looking over your shoulder to make sure you don't make a mistake and, and you know, look, look at everything you do through the worst lens that you're doing it on purpose. I mean, it's remarkable, I think, that we have as many people that, that are willing to step up and, and do those jobs, you know, our poll workers as, as there are. And so at the end of the day, I think that, that those folks do a remarkable job under those constraints. I mean, if you were to go, you know, say to a, to a McDonald's person, say, okay, yeah, you know, here, here's, here's what we want this person to be able to do. You know, how, how long would you need to train that person? They'd probably say, oh, a couple of weeks. <laughs> like, no, 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 you got four hours. That, that's, that's a challenge because uh, there's human beings and human beings make mistakes. Considering the reputation that Florida had and now I think has completely turned around and lots of other election authorities are looking at Florida and, and hoping to emulate that. What do you think made a difference in helping to improve voter confidence, especially for this last election in Florida? To me, it's, I think it's, it's pretty simple. I think it's the experience that the individual voter has when they go to vote. And so, and I know you guys probably hear this a lot, and it used to be, I don't know if it still is anymore, you know, hate Congress, but I love my congressman. Uh, you know, I don't know if that's the case anymore, but at least for election administrators, I think generally, because they, they know their, you know, neighbors are working the polls. And so, you know, there's, you know, the accusations that elections are, 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 are rigged or unfair or, you know, they see their neighbor up there and they're like, well, I, I know Jim or Jane uh, and I know, you know, they wouldn't do that. Um, and, you know, you, they see the, the Eric's and Brianna's and the David's of the world, you know, at the grocery store or at their kid's soccer game or something. And so that's their base of knowledge for how elections are run locally. So I think generally, and I don't think, I know, because you've seen the, the, the statistical data, as you get farther and farther away from your local jurisdiction, the, your confidence drops as you move off to the rest of the state and then the rest of the country. And I've seen some stats from the post-election survey that, uh, that was done in this election and saw a really precipitous drop in, in, in voter confidence. And that's something that's it's challenging. So, you know, what, so what do you have to do? I think you just got to have to continue to keep your head down and move forward to the extent that you can increase uh, transparency, get people more involved and educated in the process. Although I think there's, to, to a certain extent, there's a limitation on that because, you know, if, I don't think this problems are going to be able to solve 
completely just by increasing transparency. Because at the end of the day, if somebody doesn't want to believe something, they're not going to believe it, no matter how, how many ways you explain it. Uh, so I think you can't worry and because there's not a whole lot you're going to be able to do about that in our roles is what we do. But I think, again, um, making sure that that uh, you build the, the the transparency and the confidence in your in those that you serve directly. You know, if everybody's doing that in your county, in your state and in the rest of the country, I, I think that's that's ultimately what's going <laughs> to, you know, it sounds simple, but that's what we have to do. You know, and also I, I make it a point over the years to, to not, and I probably just from our perspective at Florida, because I think for the last 20 years have wished others done this, don't necessarily point fingers at, at people that do what we do in other parts of, uh, of your state or other parts of the country, because you don't know when it's going to be your turn in the barrel. And you don't know all the circumstances of what transpired in, in, in that jurisdiction. So I, the one the one last thing I would say is, is unlike anything I've ever seen, and I think that's pretty pretty universal accepted that election administrators across partisan political divides, regional, they want to help each other. I've never reached out to an election official uh, and had them re, you know refuse to to help me on something if I if I wanted it. And quite the opposite, I've had people you know reach out to me affirmatively and say, hey, you know if I can ever be of assistance to you. And, and I think you all probably have had that same experience uh, over the years. And so I think more, more so than any other group I've ever seen is it's a pretty tight community and, and everybody wants to help each other because at the end of the day, we all have the same goal. And that is a, a system that allows the American people to, to choose their, their leaders, which is the foundation of, of our republic, that ability for uh, the populace to, to choose their leaders. And so to the extent that we can help that in Scamby County and state of Florida or in somewhere else in the country, then, you know, we're going to do everything we can to help facilitate that. All right. Thanks everybody for listening to another episode of high turnout wide margins. A big thank you to David Stafford from Escambia County, Florida, for being our guest on this episode. We hope you tune in next time for another episode of high turnout wide margins.